I want to talk a little bit about something that's been on my heart for a long time. Um, you know, we all have Bibles, and this seems this is my favorite one. Um, it's the New King James Version. I like to read King James, but this is the New King James Version. And in every Bible that I've read, there's always been an introduction. And we've probably read those introductions. Um, for this topic, the introductions to any Bible I've read has never given it justice. So what I might say today might shock some of you. It might be new for some of you. You've probably never heard this in a church before. Um, I've got about 400 hours of research into this. So um, if you want to know more about it when I'm done, we can uh, talk about it. I was going to title this The Antique Roadshow. Seems like that's the way the day's going. Um, Martin Luther, when he started writing things, he called this book, the book of James that we're going to talk about today, the Epistle of Straw. He said it's a worthless book. And he put it in, when he put his Bible, he put it in the back in the appendix. Because he just didn't know what to do with it. Another commentator said, out of all the epistles in the New, in the New Testament, this is junk mail. So that's why I wanted to call it the Antique Roadshow. Because on that show, people go, they don't know what they really have, and they take it, and somebody appraises it. And sometimes it finds out to be gold. And what I want to present to you today is the book of James, and it is a book of gold, and it is a treasure. It is raw, it is organic, and it is uncooked. And it is for us today. So to start that off, I wanted everybody to look at this picture. I don't know if you've seen it before. Um, Do you see the old lady or do you see the young lady? All right, so there is an old lady here. If you look this way, here's her eye, here's her mouth, here's her dress. But if you look on the other way, there's a young lady right here. This is her ear, here's her nose, and then this is kind of her long flowing hair. Can everybody see both? No. <laughs> it takes a while to train the brain. It takes a while to train the brain to see that. Um, most of you know I'm a counselor, so I use that because it's all about a different perspective. It's all about getting a different perspective, right? So today I want to give you a, try to give you a different perspective. Who was James? If we pull, up, if we open up to James one one which is probably about as far as we're going to get in James today. Right after Hebrews, the book right after Hebrews. New King James Version says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's the way he introduces himself. Now James was a popular name, a form of the old great, great, great Old Testament name Jacob. And there were several names who bore his name in testimony. In the Testament. James, the son of Zebedee and the brother of John. He was one of the most prominent to bear the name. He was a fisherman called by Christ to follow to become a disciple. He and his brother John were nicknamed by Christ sons of thunder because of their impulsiveness. James was the first of the disciples to give his life for Christ, and he was killed by Herod in AD 44. James, the son of Alphaeus, he was another of the disciples, but very little, we don't know much about him. James, the father of oh, spelling error. James, the father of Judas, the disciple. He's an even a more obscure man. We don't know much about him at all. This Judas was called the son of James to distinguish him from Judas Iscariot. James, the brother of our Lord, 
He seems to be the most likely candidate to have written the book of James. James was pretty popular back in that day, and this, this book was a pretty famous book back then. It was passed around. Um, really, the book of James was, usually, was really a homily. A homily is kind of like what I'm doing today. It was really a sermon. It wasn't a letter like Paul wrote letters and uh, you know, other books that we have in our Bible. This was actually a homily that was passed around. It was actually in a sermon. Um, James does not identify himself this way. He's, he calls himself a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. That Jesus had brothers and sisters is stated in Matthew 13, 5 and 5 through 6 and Mark 6, 3. And one of his brothers was named James. Now, if we turn to John 7, 1 through 5. So the Bible is pretty clear that, that Jesus had half brothers and half sisters. And when James was alive... This is what he had to say in John 7, verse 3. Or I'll start at 2. Now, now, the Jews, now the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. And his brothers therefore said to him, Depart from here and go into Judea, that your disciples also may know the works that you are doing. For no one does anything in secret, while he himself seeks to know openly if you do these things, show yourself to the world. For even his brothers did not believe him. So Jesus, during his time, his brothers did not believe him during his earthly ministry. Yet we find the Lord's brother in the upper room praying with the disciples in Acts 1-14. through What effect did this change of faith? 1 Corinthians 15-7 indicates that Jesus appeared to James after his resurrection. And this convinced James that Jesus truly was a Savior. And he, in turn, shared his knowledge about Jesus with his other brothers. So I started thinking about this when I was doing my research. This book says a lot to me. When I was talking to Pastor Adrian, he was like, this should be an Easter story, because it's really about a resurrection, and it's really about James. Being the brother of Jesus, half-brother of Jesus, mocking him like we just saw, that we just read. They just, brothers didn't even believe him. I mean, could you imagine being Jesus' brother? So they mocked him, and they didn't really believe who he was. Something happened. The Bible says, strict, you know, closely, I'm going to thread a red theme, or, you know, a red thread for you. I'm going to sew this together. Um, the Bible says that Jesus appeared to James. And that radically changed James' life. So, you know, people say, well, how can you believe the resurrection? I've heard that before. How can you believe in that? I just looked to James. James did some amazing things because Jesus first appeared to James. Not only that, we're going to talk about the downplaying of James. James, throughout history, has been downplayed. We talked about Martin Luther calling it an epistle of straw. James has really been downplayed. Um, While these other disciples have been really raised up, Peter and Paul have been raised up. 
But James has really been downplayed. What's really missing in our Bibles that I'm going to thread together for you is the election of James. James is both superior to Peter and Paul. But you've got to really read through your Bible and you really got to connect the dots. I grew up in a, another denomination that it was all about Peter, and that's all I heard. Right? Peter's the head of the church. Peter was the first apostle. We're going to kind of tear that apart a little bit. Um, James became the, the leader of the church in Jerusalem. Paul called him a pillar in Galatians 2.9. It was James who moderated the church conference in Acts 15 when they were having trouble. When Peter was delivered from prison, he sent a special message to James in Acts 12.17. And when Paul visited Jerusalem, it was to James he brought greetings and special love offerings from the Gentiles in Acts 21, 18 through 19. So history tells us, through some of these uh, historians we're going to get into, um, Hegesippus and Eusebius and Josephus, about the life of James and that he was the head of the church and he was actually the bishop of the church in Jerusalem. But you won't hear any of this because you've got to kind of thread it together. Um, Actually, some historians say that James, the other James, John and Peter actually elected James as head of the church in Jerusalem. But that's just history. I haven't really been able to figure that out yet. Um, We have no record in the Bible that tells us about his martyrdom. James died in A.D. 62. But we do have the accounts of the people that I just talked about, Hegesippus, Eusebius and Josephus. James was at the Passover meal, and there was over 150,000 Jews in Jerusalem. Ananus, the high priest at the time, according to this, accused James of causing a stir because of his zealotry for Jesus. So James was zealous after Jesus. Actually, James at the time of Jerusalem had 20,000 followers. He had converted 20,000 people to Christianity. So Ananus, the high priest, got James and said, We will kill you unless you go to the pinnacle of the temple and in front of everybody at the Passover and renounce the faith of Jesus. So you know what James did? He agreed. He goes, I'll go to the pinnacle. He goes, I'll go to the top of the pinnacle. He goes up to the top of the pinnacle in front of 100,000 people at Passover, starts teaching righteousness and the truth, and he does not recant or renege. So Ananus kicks him off the top of the temple, and he falls on the ground, and everybody starts stoning him. That doesn't kill him. And he starts praying. And somebody, some of his followers said, no, leave him alone. He's praying. Leave him alone. And a guy comes up with a club and smacks him upside the head and kills him. And you know what he was praying? Same thing as our Savior. Jesus, forgive them. They know not what they do. That's James. What kind of man was James? 
tell you, Hegesippus, Hegesippus says, He drank neither wine nor fermented liquors and abstained from animal food. A razor never came upon his head. He never anointed with oil and never used a public bath. Because in Roman times they had public bathrooms, you know, where people showered and stuff. So he never used a public bath. He was in the habit of entering the temple alone and was often found upon his knees and interceding for the forgiveness of the people. So his knees became so hard as camels in consequence of a habitual supplication and kneeling before Elohim, his God. James was able to enter the temple. And he was able to enter the temple alone. And he was continually, according to Hegesippus, on his knees praying for the people. He must have been a deeply spiritual man to gain the leadership of the Jerusalem church in such a short time. His stature is seen in Acts 15, where he's able to permit all the factions to express themselves and then bring peace by drawing a conclusion based on the word of God. Eusebius says, James, who was surnamed the Just by the forefathers on account of his superlative virtue, was the first to have been elected to the office of Bishop of Jerusalem of the Jerusalem Church. Have you ever heard this before? It, it, when I read it, when I started researching this, it blew my mind because this isn't what I've been heard. This is, isn't what I've been taught. It's all been about, been about Peter. My whole life's been about Peter because the one verse they say is, uh, you know, on this rock I will build my church. But James was actually elected, according to some of these historians, the first bishop of Jerusalem church. <coughs> what makes this interesting is Paul in 1 Corinthians 9, 5, suggests that James was a married man. And again, tradition tells us that he was a man of prayer. And this is explained in the emphasis on prayer in his letter. It said that he prayed so much, his knees were as hard as camels. Yeah, they actually called him camel knees. Because if you've ever seen a camel get down and drink water, they really don't use their hands. They just you know, get down and they get up. So he got the reputation as camel knees. There are over 50 imperatives in the epistle of James. James did not suggest he commanded. He quoted the Old Testament only five times, but there are many allusions to the Old Testament passage in the letter. While still an unbeliever, James must have paid attention to what Jesus taught. In his letter, there are numerous allusions to the Lord's sayings, particularly on the Sermon on the Mount, which I thought this was very interesting. So hanging around with Jesus, James must have picked up a lot. Even though he was an unbeliever, it tells me that he had to have been on the Sermon on the Mount. This is just a little bit of what's in the book of James. Now, James, like I said, is a raw book. It's really organic. People, a lot of people just glaze over it because it doesn't have any Christology in it. It doesn't have any deep theology in it. It is just a raw book. So raw that when I read it, you know, it's just righteousness. It's really a book about how to live. We don't have to get into deep thinking. We don't have to get into a lot of these things. Um, let me get to James really quick. What makes it more interesting is James 
was the first book written. So, James was written in 43 AD. Math, you know, we know Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Those didn't come out until 60, 64, so much later. So when you look at the, look at the New Testament, James, we should, we should pick up and take an ear to it, James is the first book written in the New Testament. Matthew and Mark came along a lot later. What interested me about this is that last slide I showed you, James is all over in the book of Matthew. When you get to the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, it is James all over. And James was written first. So the Holy Spirit was really doing some good work. But like I said, the book of James is a very popular book back in the day when it was written because he was the bishop of the church. Keep in mind that James led the church of Jerusalem in a very difficult time. It was a time of transition, and such times are always upsetting and demanding. There are many Christian Jews in Jerusalem who still hold to, who still held to the Old Testament law. The temple and its service was still in operation. And the full light of the gospel of God's grace had not yet been out in its broad light. It hadn't come out till later, till Paul started doing things. While there have been many differences in degrees of spiritual knowledge and experience, there was no competition between Paul and those who directed the Jerusalem church. Galatians 2, 1 through 10. My main, read is, my main reason for this is this is my favorite book, and this book changed my life when I read it. First off, it proves... The resurrection, it proves it to me without a shadow of a doubt. And then it gives me a deep meaning for the book. Just these little passages that I read in James. If a brother or sister is naked and is destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body. What is this profit? So I have this running through my head, because I, I read James probably about once a week. It's real stuff. So when I was living in Missoula, Montana, um, I used to walk to the hospital. I used to work at the hospital. Then. I used to walk, walk past the hospital. Take that verse in context to what it said to me. So I, I used to walk by these homeless people every day. That's exactly what I was doing. I was a pretty cynical person back then. I still am a little bit today. But I used to walk by them every day. And the Holy Spirit stopped me one time on the, on the bridge and said that exact voice. If you do nothing, what good is that? You don't even know these people. You walk by like... Yeah, I stopped right there. Um, and I went up and I started talking to these guys. Homeless people in Missoula, Montana made friends with them, fed them, did everything I could for them. They would see me coming and they, they would be happy because I acknowledged them as a human being. All because of that verse. All because of James. Let's flash forward. That was, that was what, eight years ago? Flash forward last year. I went to Ecuador. A lot of homeless people. I'm reading James again. I walk by somebody. The same thing hits me. A dollar for me is nothing. A dollar for them is everything. I stopped and I helped the guy. 
gave him a dollar. I wasn't even really uh, planning on sticking around, um, but the guy went in and bought food, you know. But I've learned long, long ago that it's just my faithfulness to give. It's up to them what they do with it. But because of this verse, but because of reading James and getting it in my system and getting it in my soul. See, I follow, most of you know me pretty good, I follow a simple gospel. I really do. And it all, gets, it all comes from James. It's all about faith. It's all about grace. It's all about walking it out in righteousness and truth. James says some pretty hard things, you know. He talks about the source of temptations. Where do temptations come from? Faith removes discrimination. Faith proves itself by works, like I just said. Not that we're not a works-based place, but our faith drives us to work. Faith controls the tongue. Faith produces humility and faith produces, a, a, produces wisdom. Faith prays for the afflicted. That's James. There's nothing hard about that. It's Christianity at its core. James was writing to the 12 tribes dispersed. That, when we say that, we don't really think about it. But um, how do those tribes get dispersed? See, I ask these questions. How do they get dispersed? Everyone knows the stoning of Stephen. That's how they got dispersed. So James is right into these people. After the stoning of Stephen, they went to all ends and corners of the earth. So James starts writing to them. He says the twelve tribes which are the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad. Greetings. The twelve tribes can only mean the people of Israel and the Jewish nation. The fact that many Jews lived outside their promised land is evidence of the spiritual decline of the nation. God had scattered them. When Peter addressed this huge congregation at Pentecost, he spoke to men from many different nations. James sent his letter to Christian Jews. At least 19 times he addressed them as brethren, indicating not only brothers in the flesh, but also brothers in the Lord. James was very clear on the doctrine of the new birth. There are times when James also addressed wicked men who were not in the fellowship. The rich, for example, in James 5, through, James, James 5, 1 through 6. But he did so in order to teach and encourage the saved Jews to whom he sent the letter. The word scattered in James 1 is interesting because it means in the dispersion. The term the dispersion was used to identify the Jews living outside the land of Palestine. But the Greek word carries the idea of scattered seed. When the Jewish believers were scattered in the first wave of the persecution, it was really the sowing of seed in many places. So they were dispersed and they sowed seed and they started to have converts. Christian Jews were scattered throughout the whole Roman Empire. And they had many problems and needs of their own. They would be rejected by the Gentiles and by the Christian Jew, or by the Jews. They were rejected by their own countrymen. The letter indicates that most of these believers were poor and some of them were being oppressed by the rich. Each New Testament letter has a theme. Romans was to prepare the Roman Christians that he intended to visit. 1 Corinthians was sent to the church of Corinth to help correct certain problems. Galatians was written to a group of churches to warn them against legalism and false teaching. 
As you read the epistle of James, you discover that the Jewish Christians were having some problems in their personal lives and in their church fellowship. For one thing, they were going through difficult testings, and they were also facing temptations to sin. Some of the believers were catering to the rich, while others were being robbed by the rich. Church members were competing for offices in the church, particularly teaching offices. One of the major problems in the church was the failure on part of many to live what they professed to believe. Furthermore, the tongue was a serious problem, even to the point of creating wars and divisions in the assembly. Worldliness was another problem. Some of the members were disobeying God's word and were sick physically because of it. And some were staying away from the church. As we review this list of problems, does it appear much different from the problems that beset the average local church today? This is a book that is very relevant. Do we not have in our churches people who are suffering for one reason or another? Do we not have members who talk one way but walk another? Is it not worldliness a serious problem? Are there not Christians who cannot control their tongues? It seems that James is dealing with a very up-to-date matter. That's why I take this book very seriously. But James was not discussing an era of miscellaneous problems. Of all these problems had a common cause, spiritual immaturity. These Christians simply weren't growing up. This gives us a hint of the basic theme of this letter that marks the maturity in a Christian life. James uses the word perfect several times, a word that means mature or complete. By a perfect man, James did not mean a sinless man, but rather one who is mature, balanced, and grown up. Spirituality is really, spiritual maturity is one of the greatest needs in our church today. Too many churches are playpens for babies instead of workshops for adults. We're supposed to be spiritually mature. The members are not even mature enough to eat the solid spiritual food they need. So they have to be fed on milk. They just look at the problems that James dealt with and see the characteristics. After well over a century of my ministry, 10 years, I'm convinced that spiritual maturity is the number one problem in our churches today. God is looking for mature men and women to carry out his purpose. We don't get there overnight. I'm going to talk about this. If you read James 1.18, it says, Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we may be kind of a first fruits of his creatures. Now this parallels 1 Peter 1.23 that says, Being born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible, by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. So just as humans have two babies, so we do too. We have the word, which is going out today, and hopefully the spirit is doing the work. So we have a mother and a father to be born again. We're twice born. James says it, that you have to be born again. That's what happened to me. The Word and the Spirit came together with the, in the womb of faith, and I was born in a believer. 
I was sitting in a... Well, actually, I was by myself, but... I was by myself reading, and the Word and the Spirit came together in the womb of faith, and I was born. And what are the characteristics of the twice-born or the newborn? What are the characteristics? Do you love Christ? Do you love Christ? The new, the twice born, the born again, when spirit and word got together in the womb of faith. Do you love Christ? Because that's what God loves. Do you desire for holiness? So nobody talks about holiness and righteousness. When God came into me and changed my life, my desire is to be holy and righteous. Do we fail? Yeah. I'm still a. When you're born, you're not born an adult. You're born a baby. And you have to grow. I've grown over 20 years. I've you know, been to school. I've learned some things. I study. And I grow. And I grow in, in God. But my number one desire is when I pray, He always says, Follow me. He just wants me to follow Him. And I love Him. Because I've been born again and I'm born into his family. Is there a love for Christ in your heart today? Do you desire for holiness? Do you have the inner witness of the Spirit? I can't explain that. I can't explain it. How do I explain it? It's hard to explain. But when I say, am I yours? The Spirit says, yes. Yes. It's kind of kind of funny, but we ask people like it'd be my, like me asking, "Are you a human?" Well, yeah, of course. <laughs> Are you born again? It should be that kind of question. It shouldn't be. I think so. I don't know. Maybe that'd be ridiculous, wouldn't it? If I asked you, "Are you born again?" and you said, "I think so," the inner witness of the Spirit convicts my spirit that I am a child of God. That I'm going with him. And that's my desire in my heart that I wish to share with everybody. That's the fourth thing. Do you have a desire to share Christ with people? Four witnesses, four things of being born again. And I don't like to be fruit inspector. I've never really, you know, been a fruit inspector because I know everybody's on this stage of perfection and justification and sanctification. I know everybody's like a baby. And they're walking this out the best they can until they become a spiritually mature adult. Which is what we're looking for, what God's looking for. Can he use anybody? He can use me. But are you born again? That's the question. That's the question James asked in 118. Are you born again? That's what it really comes down to. 